We're starting a new series today, as I think you all know, uh, in the book of Esther, and we're going to do two things today. We'll get into chapter one this afternoon in a few moments, but um, I think it'd be helpful to say a few things first by way of introduction, just to set a context. Uh, That doesn't mean that we'll be two hours, we'll try and be tight, but uh, hopefully we'll try and do uh, those two things. Um, First of all, um, uh, let's uh, think about this story. Occasionally you might hear in in sport of a team that's 3-0 down at half time and somehow manages to win the game 4-3. It's a dramatic comeback. It's an amazing turnaround. And the book of Esther, I think, fits into that category. It is a brilliantly written true story about a last-minute rescue from the jaws of certain death. The shape of the book introduces a major crisis. We could just put it like this. All great stories have a shape to them. That's what makes them memorable. This story is no different. There's a crisis, there's a resolution, and the book ends in great joy. The tension builds very slowly at first. The first uh, three or four chapters actually cover almost a decade time-wise. And the tension slowly escalates. The various characters are introduced. And the people of God at this time in history are the object of vicious hatred from one deranged megalomaniac of a guy. And they're on the cusp of annihilation by brutal genocide. I I wanted to put a sad face under crisis, but I, I felt that was too twee to have a sad face. This was an awful predicament for the people of God to be in. in. The middle chapters, though, are incredible because from chapter 5 to chapter 8, they, they cover only three days. And there's this amazing, through a combination of human courage and a series of unbelievable coincidences, there's a massive turnaround and the tables are suddenly turned and the book ends with God's people not being wiped out but celebrating boisterously and wildly way more than if they won the game after being 3-0 down at half time let's say this profound reversal was so dramatic that Jewish people still celebrate this today two and a half thousand years later with the festival of Purim every single year. It's a carnival, a boisterous, happy, rejoicing, remembering this great turnaround. Over the centuries, though, while Jews have absolutely loved this book, there's been a strange reluctance amongst Christians I I think Christians have really struggled what to know how how to deal with this book Um, as far as we can tell there were no commentaries written on the book of Esther in the first 700 years of the church's history 700 years now there, there may have been and we haven't found them yet 
But there, there are commentaries by early church fathers on all the books of the Bible, none on Esther for 700 years. The famous reformer Martin Luther despised the book of Esther because he felt it was too Jewish and it contained, I quote, too much pagan naughtiness. He lamented the fact that Jews of his time seemed to love Esther more than, say, the book of Isaiah or the book of Daniel. He, he didn't think that Esther should even be in the Bible at all. So I just want to explore with you briefly three possible reasons for this. First of all, in the book of Esther, the characters are messy. The heroine, Esther, is a Jewish orphan girl who at first hides her true identity, but then is so good in bed that the king chooses her as the winner of Persia's version of Love Island. She seems initially more like Kim Kardashian than, say, Mother Teresa. The whole book is more like Game of Thrones than Sunday school material. And the th- here's the thing. Sometimes I think in life we want to read stories like this and we want to know who are the good guys so we can cheer for them and who are the bad guys so we can go, boo. But the book of Esther isn't a pantomime. The bad guys are certainly more obvious, but the heroes are, at best, ambiguous. And in the end, they they turn out, in a way, to be both victims of an oppressive regime and willing participants within it. It, It's messy. So we're never quite sure whether to cheer or boo or a little bit of boo. Can you cheer and boo at the same time? The characters are messy. Secondly, the apparent absence of God it's a major issue God is not mentioned in this book anywhere at all there are no miracles or visions there's no prayer to God and there's no clear word from God it is as if God is either absent or or silent and I, I think the author is clearly very deliberate in writing this account in the way he does, avoiding any reference at all to religious activity. There's several places where the writer could have said things, but chose not to. This fact has led to various groups in history either dismissing the book as completely unbiblical, or adding to it because they're embarrassed by it. So we we know that because we have the original Hebrew version of Esther, but we also have some Greek versions that are written later on by Christians, and they've added 103 verses to the book of Esther to make it look more religious. They're embarrassed by it, and surely this book can't be in the Bible. Let's kind of tweak it so that people pray and do religious things. And thirdly, I want to just highlight this thing as well, that in the book of Esther, life in exile seems the norm. That, that is a surprise. Uh, we, we haven't got time to get into all the history of this. The exile of the Jews is a big deal in the Old Testament. Because of their unfaithfulness to God, 
they were scattered. Their temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. Their glory as a nation lay in ruins as they were carried off into exile by pagan kings. And it was their own fault. They were not completely without hope because God had promised to bring them home one day. And I I think when we read the Bible uh, and we look into Old Testament, I think we tend to love those books that celebrate this great return from exile. So we'll read Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. These are all books in the Bible. And when we read those books, we feel glad that God has not forgotten his broken people. Despite their sin, they are still his. They're still loved. They're still precious. And now, by God's grace, they're coming home and things are being rebuilt. And they're worshipping God again in Jerusalem like they always did. The book of Esther is biblically very strange. Because it's the only book in the Bible that is about the Jews who never went home. Were they wrong to stay in exile? Why did they not join the party and go home? Had they become too comfortable in a foreign country in exile... And decided just to stay there instead of going home. The surprising thing in the book of Esther is that there's no concern or hint of them even being encouraged to go home. It's utterly unique in the Old Testament as a book. I think this book is asking a different question. And the question is, can they survive as the people of God as a vulnerable minority in a pagan empire? That's the question that this book is asking. Can they survive as God's people in an oppressive pagan empire? Is God with them here? And amazingly, the answer is yes. Good. The answer is yes, God is with them even as they live in exile, even after many of their fellow Jews have gone home. So perhaps we can understand the strange reluctance and and people not being sure what to do with this book. It's a slightly odd combination of messy characters. God seems to be absent. And this idea that life in exile is somehow a, a, a normal thing. I want to suggest to you, thirdly, that this, all these things are what make the book of Esther so profoundly relevant. So let's cross that out. <laughs> and let's, let's talk about these three things. Let, let's flip these three reasons over. Because I, I think actually the book of Esther is a work of genius that is profoundly relevant to us. Now, I've been using the term the people of God very deliberately to draw a line from them to us today. The Jewish nation is very precious to God. But the people of God are not now primarily an ethnic group as they were in the Old Testament. God worked through the Jewish nation. Jesus comes into the world 
because of the Jewish nation and its glorious history. But the point of Christ coming into the world is to build a people who transcend national and ethnic boundaries. The people of God now are a glorious, global, multi-ethnic group. The people of God are all those who are united in trusting Christ as their saviour and following him as their king. So the question is, maybe we should have like a 10 minute little break for us to discuss this. How does it feel to live as a Christian believer in the UK in 2020? Oh, no, I'm only joking. How, how does it feel to live as a believer in the UK now? Let's take these three ideas in reverse. Do you feel like a minority in a larger culture that is not sympathetic? So did these people in Esther. We, we, we don't yet face the kind of physical persecution that many believers around the world do face every day. But it does seem clear that we are now a minority group in a, in a culture that is increasingly hostile. To go back to the sports analogy, it doesn't feel like we're winning, does it? I, w- I want to suggest to you that, in fact, during most of history, life in exile has been the norm. In the first century, Jesus himself was born into a brutal empire. Christian believers were not in charge in the first century. They lived as a minority in a much larger empire that at times brutally oppressed them. I I think in the West, the the last few centuries have been abnormal. This is normal, historically, much more. So it is as if we are living as a people within a kind of empire. Sometimes that empire leaves us alone. Increasingly, it demands that we play by its rules or risk the consequences. Social commentators tell us that we're now living in a post-Christian culture. It's hard to know, isn't it? Hard to respond to that. Different Christians have different opinions. Should we fight to regain lost influence? Should we withdraw and keep our heads down in the belief that things will only get worse before they might get better? Should we just become like the surrounding culture and accept its values? What should we do? It's quite scary, isn't it? What should we do as we live as a minority in a larger empire? Should we resist or isolate or join in? Secondly, do you feel something of our own moral ambiguity? I I think there are some issues that we feel rightly, strongly about and that we want to be clear on. But the truth is, isn't it, that we are all deeply influenced by the culture that we live in. All the amazing technology that we have in our hands 
that has such power for good also magnifies our consumerism, addictions and prejudices. We sense somehow that our culture is flawed, but at the same time we kind of like it and we're part of it. I wonder whether sometimes we might like to think of us as Christian believers as Daniels, courageously standing up for the truth. I wonder whether perhaps most of us are more like Esther, somehow both victims and participants in the surrounding culture. Isn't it encouraging that God uses imperfect people? And thirdly, do you feel like God is absent? Sometimes people say to me, they'll say to you, no doubt, that they would, I'd, I'd believe in God if he gave me extraordinary proof. But nothing dramatic ever seems to happen. It's all so ordinary. We show up at church, there's a few of us, it's great, isn't it? There's a world outside that doesn't care, it's all so mundane. Is God at work in the mundane? Or are things ordinary because he's not there? That's the question that Esther is confronting us with. So I want to suggest that Esther is incredibly true to life as we experience it right now. And it teaches us ultimately that God is not absent And as one writer puts it, that God does not abandon his people, no matter how dark their circumstances, how compromised their hearts are, or how hidden he may seem. God does not abandon his people, no matter how dark their circumstances, how compromised their hearts, or how hidden he may seem. Well, there's a bit of context. Shall we get into chapter one? Otherwise, all your tummies will be rumbling. Chapter one. I've entitled this uh, talk, A a Powerful and Ridiculous Empire. The interesting thing here, I said about the first three or four chapters cover nearly a decade. Chapter one and two are effectively an introduction to the main plot and the crisis that develops. And we'll get there, but if this was a game of chess, at this point, the author is just putting the pieces on the board, ready for the game to begin. So it's a little bit weird as we come to this chapter. In in this chapter, we don't get to meet any of God's people. The main point here, just get this, the main point here is that the author is describing the kind of world that the story happens within. The the author is describing the kind of atmosphere that God's people live in. We'll get there. This is the scene setting. Next week we'll meet some more characters. But I want us to see that this is a powerful and yet ridiculous empire. And that means that God's people are vulnerable from the very beginning. So... I had six points, but I'm pretending they're two. 
because I've put them in, three, in three, two threes, so I can get away with saying it's only two points. But uh, point one, this is a massive, mighty and impressive empire, so I snuck three points in there. Just uh, you, you really need to keep your page, your, your finger in the page here. Let, let's look at these verses together. First of all, this empire is massive. Verse one introduces us to the main man, King Xerxes. Mo was telling me this week how to pronounce that in Persian, and I can't do it. But the, at the at the bottom, there's a footnote. He's caught in in Hebrew, Ahasuerus. You can't translate that. In Hebrew, it sounds like King Headache, but it, his, his name is Xerxes here. Ask Mo afterwards and he'll tell you. The verse defines him by the size of his empire. This is the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. So I tried to draw a little map. Ooh. Here we are, if, you, if you're interested in geography. The year is 486 BC. King Xerxes, his grandfather, King Cyrus the Great, established the Persian Empire in the middle of the 500s BC. And Xerxes, his grandson, became king at the age of 32 in 486 BC. And by this point, the Persian kingdom was the biggest kingdom the world has ever seen. It stretched from northeast Africa in the west to the northwest of India, near Pakistan, as we would call it now. This is the largest empire the world has ever seen up to this point. So this is the most powerful man in the world. One writer says this is the guy who has the nuclear codes in his briefcase. You know, he's, he's the main man. It's hard for us to imagine living in an empire like this now because there's no planes or cars, most people would walk. If you're lucky, you might have a horse or some other, some other animal you can sit on. So your whole life would be pretty much spent in the same village. Even if you didn't like it, there's no escaping an empire as big as this. The people of God lived within this empire. They had no choice and there was nowhere to hide. This is the world that they're part of, whether they like it or not. So the massive part is important. Uh, secondly, oh, and there's the, the city of Susa, or Shushan, I think. Is that right? Shushan? Shush. Okay, sorry. I know I'd get that wrong. Been practicing all week as well. Secondly, mighty. We're then told in verse 2 that Xerxes ruled from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. This glorious citadel was begun by his father Darius and Xerxes finished it. And a citadel, you know, a citadel is a kind of raised castle within the city. So you have a powerful city here and then within the city you've got the citadel. And everything's elevated. There's some archaeology been done over the last 200 years and it's it's amazing for people to see some of the ruins of this. Uh, I I think the citadel was like 120 feet higher than the rest of the city or something. 
So he's sitting on his throne, reigning over this massive empire. We know quite a bit about Xerxes from secular historians. And in the early part of his reign, it says here that this is the third year of his reign, he has already quelled rebellions in Egypt and in Babylon. So this idea that he's sitting on his throne, reigning, having finished the citadel, this this is kind of a a happy scene. There's peace, there's security. This guy's squashed rebellion, he finished his castle that his dad started, and the scene is one of peaceful security. And with that, Xerxes throws a banquet. Verse 3. He gave a banquet. He threw a massive party. There's a lot of banquets in this book. You'll get to, you'll get to know that. There's three in this chapter alone. The plot revolves around banquets, as we'll see. They liked feasting in Persia. Um, this first one is significant because it's thrown for all the most powerful people in the empire. And the author here piles up descriptions of the people who have the golden tickets the nobles and officials the military leaders the princes the nobles of all the provinces everyone who matters is at this party the point is that this is a powerful king gathering his powerful generals this is the guy who gives orders to the people who give orders You don't mess with these people. They back up their decisions with might if they have to. So in this environment, not only is there nowhere to hide, there's no way to win. This is a powerful, ruthless machine. You don't protest in this empire without getting squashed. And this is the world in which the people of God live. And the point being made repeatedly here is that they're vulnerable. It's also an impressive empire. Um, Verse 4 is incredible. This banquet lasts for six incredible months. I mean, I take it that they didn't just shut down the government for six months to have a party. I presume that people were coming and going and still doing their jobs or maybe they felt so secure that they could all just like have a party for six months the point in verse 4 look at verse 4 for a full 180 days King Xerxes displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendour and glory of his majesty that he's showing off that's what this party's about he is showing off what he has and who he is and what he's done. And we're then told at the end of this dazzling display that the king throws another banquet. Verse 5, when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting for seven days. And this banquet, it's not so much the nobles and generals and princes and officials. In this second banquet, lasting for a week at the end, six-month party with another week's party tagged on the end, this party is for the commoners who live in the citadel. So the king opens the doors. Do you remember that programme, Through the Keyhole? 
This is where the king says, everyone's welcome. From the, I, I don't know, the laundry to the clip. Everyone, come on in. And the descriptions in verse 6 to 8. The the author takes time to paint this visual picture. This party was in a pavilion in the garden of the palace. The furnishings are rich and colourful. Everything is silver and gold and precious stones. And the glasses are not cheap ones from Ikea. These gla- it's, it, it actually says every goblet was not just made of gold, but it was individually crafted. I mean, maybe, maybe that's so you know which one was your drink. No, that, that was my one. It's got two wings on it. You know, I, your, your, yours is the one with the eagle claw. You know, you, it, it, it's an incredible scene. The whole thing is designed to make your eyes pop out with wonder. Wow, look at this. Xerxes is like a mini god. Five star, luxurious and lavish. The king spares no expense in filling his wine cellar or hiring hordes of waiters to serve the masses. And he makes it clear. Verse, oh man, small print, eight. There's this weird, the king makes a law, he makes a decree that they can all drink however they like. I mean, there's a bit of irony in that. Who makes a law to emphasize freedom? You can do it. You don't have to stand on ceremony. You don't have to wait for the king. You don't have to stop when the king stops. You just do whatever you like for seven days in this amazing party. This then is the kind of world that the people of God live in. Massive, mighty, and in a sense, stunning. Wow. Secondly, I want you to notice that this is a demanding, dangerous and conical empire. First of all, demanding. When we scratch a little under all of this impressiveness, there's more to the king's generosity than meets the eye. Maybe you're suspecting that already. Why is he showing off so much? Is he just a great, generous guy? We know from secular historians that in this very year, the king held a great war council. Xerxes is into the third year of his reign, so it's 483 BC. He's now 35 years old, and his father, King Darius, had led an unsuccessful military campaign in Greece. And then when he came home, he died of old age before he could go and try again. Xerxes not only finished the castle that his dad started, but he was determined to avenge his father's failure and put that right. The Greek historian Herodotus records Xerxes speaking to his assembled nobles, possibly during these very banquets. Let me read to you what Herodotus writes in his histories. This is is him writing about what King Xerxes said. For this cause, this is like the film Braveheart. For this cause, I've now summoned you together, says Xerxes, that I may impart to you my purpose. It is my intent to bridge the housebond and lead my army to Greece, that I may punish the Athenians for what they've done to the Persians and to my father. 
You saw that Darius, my father, was minded to make an expedition expedition against this man, but he's dead, and it was not granted him to punish them. And I, on, on his and all the Persians' behalf, will never rest till I have taken and burnt Athens. As for you, this is how you shall best please me. When I declare the time for your coming, every one of you must appear, and with a good will, and whosoever comes with his army, best equipped shall receive from me such gifts as are reckoned the most precious among us. You see what's happening here. The king gathers all of his nobles to show off his vast wealth to gain support for a military campaign to avenge his father. This is a man who's feeling successful and confident and planning to expand the franchise. We're going to take Greece. My dad couldn't do it, but I'm going to put that right. Oh, man, we'll talk about Greece some more next week because he came back with his tail between his legs as well. And I think the people who are reading this know that. So there's an irony here in this chapter because people know how this played out when they first read it. The message is clear. This is an empire that offers great reward to those who participate. The idea here is look at all this wealth, look at all this power, look at all the fun you can have. You can have a slice of this if only you sign up to the programme. So none of this lavish generosity is really free. It's designed to be seductive and alluring. There's the promise of security and comfort in return for allegiance. One writer compares this to a massive protection racket. The Persians actually were very reasonable in allowing minorities to thrive and tribal groups to have their own identity so long as they swore loyalty to the empire. You send your gold and your soldiers and your women And you get the security of knowing that if some big bad guy comes knocking on your door, they'll get the full force of the Persian Empire knocking their lights out. You you get the idea. Now, this is two and a half thousand years ago. Why are we even talking about this? Can you see some parallels, maybe, with our modern world? And with the way all powerful empires actually seem to work, first of all, I think King Xerxes here speaks of the deep hunger in all of us for love and admiration and loyalty. Some of us can just do things on a grander scale than others can. Xerxes looks like a god here, but he's empty. He's just like all of us. Craving adulation wanting to be the centre of attention. He just does it on a bigger scale than most of us ever could dream of. Secondly, I I think this chapter even is a little ironic, satirical peep behind the curtain to help us see that the promises that look so amazing are actually not that great. Our own culture taps into our deepest fears. 
to stir us to buy its products, doesn't it? Think about this. Adverts look so appealing, don't they? But behind all of them are basically insults. You're too old, or you're too young, or too ugly, or too busy, or too dull, or too poor. But our culture says, don't worry, we've got you covered. It's, it's like the message behind an advert is an insult. But what's held out is, we've got you sorted. Come and have a slice of this, and you'll be fine. We get sucked into being consumers who end up making great sacrifices to get what we think we need. This is two and a half thousand years old, but we're not that far removed from this kind of scenario. And thirdly, the danger. Oh, sorry, secondly, that was the demanding part. Secondly, danger. In verse 9, there's a third banquet. This time held by the queen, who is called Vashti. By the end of the week, the king is drunk. He's drunk on wine, and I, I want to suggest that he's high on adulation as well. Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when, the, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, at this point, he's shown off the splendor of his kingdom for six months and a week. He has the power and the wealth, but now, fueled by drink, the talk turns to sex. And the thought occurs to him to show off his wife as well. I have it all, King Xerxes is saying. The power, the wealth. Just wait till you see the queen. And he orders his seven closest servants to go and fetch the queen from the women's banquet next door. I don't know why all seven of her had to go. Maybe she was a ferocious woman, I don't know. But, um, or maybe all seven of them went because they were going to carry her in on some kind of platform. The king wishes her to wear her crown. Some commentators have speculated that it was only her crown. We don't know. But whatever his motive, the king here wishes to flaunt his wife in front of a roaring crowd of drunken men. Instead of his wife being the recipient of his care and affection and respect, she is an object to be used to say something about him. It sounds quite up to date, this to me. <laughs> Two and a half thousand years ago. It's not difficult to see a reflection here of our own culture. We won't dwell on this. On the one hand, we pride ourselves, I think, in our modern culture that we empower our women. Progress. It's International Women's Day today, isn't it? And yet more and more cases of abuse of women by powerful men come out, it seems, in the news every week. Pornography is everywhere. 
One writer asks, I think quite reasonably, if our world is really valuing women or just deceiving them into a false sense of freedom, making them willing participants in a culture that objectifies and abuses them. The main point, we we could spend the whole talk on this, the main point here, though, is not about sex or gender. What the author is drawing our attention to here, as we keep saying, is that this is the kind of mixed-up world that the people of God live within. There's something slightly terrifying about absolute power being held by such a deeply flawed man. Man, where have we heard that before? This empire is massive and mighty and impressive. There's nowhere to hide. There's no way you can win. But it's also demanding and dangerous and sometimes randomly brutal. However, the more you read this chapter, the more you sense that the author is not praising the empire. I don't think he's even hinting that he's afraid of the empire. What he's doing is subtly poking fun at it. This chapter is a satire. So, thirdly, this is a comical empire. First of all, there is the obvious irony of a man who spent the last six months boasting about conquering the world, now feeling embarrassed that people in the crowd are tweeting, Vasti said no. This guy spent six months showing off his prowess It tells us here that he burned with anger. Little wonder, in a sense, his whole project, he's trying to gain support for a military campaign. And his wife says, no. The point is here that the king could have brought her in by force, couldn't he? He could have put her in a box, he could have put her in chains, he could have brought her in to show her off. But that isn't the point, is it? He needs her to come willingly. Not under coercion. But in this case, though he can command his generals, he is unable to bend her will to his. People have debated, you know, in history whether she's right or wrong here. Christians have been the worst at this. You know, women should obey their husbands. What a terrible example. Truly, commentaries have been written that she and other people have held her up as this great ideal of a woman who had the courage to stand up and say, no, I'm not having this. The, the author doesn't give us any clue as to her motives or what's going on. But this is true, isn't it? Of all abusive power, force is not the same as respect. Making someone do something isn't the same as them being willing to do it. The king of the whole world can smash things up whenever he wants, but he still can't change another human being's heart. Perhaps we're beginning to sense that this emperor actually has no clothes. But secondly, the massive overreaction is just hilarious, isn't it? This domestic crisis is escalated into a serious matter of state. 
And though he's powerful, we begin to see that this king can't make a single decision on his own, so he calls his closest aides. We've already met his seven eunuchs, and now he summons his seven sages, who are actually more like seven dwarves, and one of them has either pulled the short straw to be the spokesman, or he's too stupid to stop and think. His name is Mamukin. And he basically argues that if their wives hear about this, the very fabric of the empire will start to crumble. That's his advice. He, he says that there'll be no end of discord and disrespect. Everything's going to fall apart. It's honestly... That, that then he proposes that they send a decree to every house in the empire which has the effect of publicising what's just happened. We don't want anyone to know. Let's send a decree to every house in the post. And then everyone... I mean, it's this guy... And it's hard to even know where to start with this. Let, let me just give you some quick five things. First of all, there is the possibility here that these advisors are just concerned about their own wives somehow being sexually compliant. If the Queen says no, what's my, my wife might say no. This is terrible, it needs sorting out straight away. Are, are they just being selfish? You, when, you, when you read what this guy says to the King, it kind of smacks of like, whoops, this is a big problem. Second, to banish Vasti... It's an amazing response because it basically gives her on a plate what she's just done anyway. I'm not coming. Okay, you're banished. Great, I wasn't coming anyway. It's like, who are these? These are the wisest men in the empire. Third, there's the fact that where power rules supreme, it seems that the solution to every single problem is to pass a new law. Does that sound familiar? This is how the might of this world always expresses itself. We have a problem, pass a law. Vasti said, no, let's make a decree. Fourth, how on earth do you police a law like this? Oh, man. It raises the ludicrous image of a whole group of domestic male authority police knocking on every door in the empire with clipboards, asking if the man is truly in charge. Just fill out this form, sir. It's just a few questions. It's a carbon copy underneath, if you just don't mind signing. I mean, it's just ludicrous. Because there's the obvious truth that respect surely has to be earned, not legislated for. You can't make a law like this. This whole incident introduces us to powerful men in high places while at the same time poking fun at their irrational fears and stupidity. It's hard to know if it's a comedy or a tragedy. The point is that this magnificent empire seems brilliantly capable of shooting itself right in the foot. This king's court is bureaucratic and legally pedantic and yet a drunken, reckless mass 
The king is powerful and yet unpredictable. He makes rash decisions on a whim, and other people in his life do not exist as worthy objects of his love, but as pawns in a game that he's playing. The whole thing is fearsome and yet fragile. It's dangerous, but at the same time, completely absurd. In a kingdom like this, with a king like this, the people of God are vulnerable. And yet at the same time, it seems to me like the author is smiling because he seems to know that in the end, the emperor has no clothes and his wannabe empire is a joke that will, in the end, collapse under the weight of its own contradictions. I think it's very striking that this empire seems so very tolerant until you stand up to it like Vashti did. The message is clear. You can have it all if you play by the rules, but you'll be crushed if you dare challenge. Isn't it up to date? (laughs) It's like... Oh, man, time's gone. We knew it would be long today. Trying to introduce and do a chapter. Let me close with this thought. I mean, how do you get anything out of this that's like going to send you home with encouragement? It's, I, I think the right thing for us to do is to point to a better and less think empire. As the author sets the scene for us here, he acknowledges the power of this empire, but subtly mocks its weakness. And I think this chapter shines a light on the kind of world that we all actually live in. There's nowhere to hide. In a sense, there's no way to win. It's demanding and sometimes dangerous, but ultimately there's nothing to fear because it's a bit stupid. (laughs) By contrast, surely there's a better empire than this one. Even though this chapter and this book say nothing about God at all, I think there are subtle hints all the way through that the real power lies somewhere else. Surely, only a king with a perfect character is worthy to wield absolute power. And only a king who uses his power to serve others rather than satisfying his own personal lusts is worthy of respect and devotion and surely friends there's a better empire a lasting empire that is not all brash destructive empty promises friends there is such a magnificent king His name is not Xerxes, his name is Jesus. What an irony that the God, who should rightly be the centre of all of our attention, has given us a book that doesn't mention him at all. And the genius of Esther, I think, is that the author never once tells us what to think. He's telling a story, he or she, it could be a she, he he or she are telling a story 
that is inviting you to consider where does the real power lie? Is it with bumbling kings, evil madmen, or compromised believers? This story is an invitation to look beyond the glitz and the power of this world to the God who really rules. To see by faith that though hidden, God is the main actor in the story. And to see that none of this foolishness can stop him quietly and powerfully and patiently bringing his beautiful plans to fruition. The story of this great reversal points to the greatest reversals that the world has ever seen. That God should humble himself to become a man and die on a cross. That is a great reversal. That that death should not be a defeat but a cosmic victory. Is that not a great reversal? That flawed characters like you and me should be snatched from the jaws of certain death and given eternal life. Is that not a great reversal? And friends, the fact that all the empires of this world that seem so utterly powerful now will actually be outlasted by this kingdom of Jesus that often seems so weak and obscure, that, friends, is a great reversal. If you're a Christian... Be encouraged this afternoon that you are part of the people of God and that God is working out all things for his glory and your good. And if you're not a Christian believer, what will you do with this? Part of my job is to hold out to all of you the good news of the gospel and call you to respond. I want, I want to urge you this afternoon to think about which empire your allegiance is with. Is it this world and its empires? Come even this afternoon and trust in Jesus as your saviour and king. As we close... I'm just going to close, not by praying, but by reading a psalm. Just go with me to Psalm 2. Maybe our musicians can come up. We're going to sing in a moment. This psalm is a brilliant psalm, and I think you'll appreciate its relevance as we go through it. Page 543. The psalmist writes, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance 
the ends of the earth you'll possess and you will break them with a rod of iron you will dash them to pieces like pottery therefore you kings be wise be warned you rulers of the earth serve the lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling kiss the son lest he be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment blessed are all who take refuge in him